Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. So I saw the Venerable Paniwadi today. I didn't know if she was going to be here. Um, you know, she sings to me. I don't know if she knows she sings to me, but she sings to me. You know, she sings all the time, and when I do my loving-kindness practice, I hear that, that, that song, and it's her voice, and it's love. Mm. And I love, like Andrew was talking about, it's not the easiest for me. This untrusting heart, this hardened heart. And it's this, you know, this love from this beautiful old woman that just unconditionally supports me and pushes me so uh, I can expand my heart towards love. And uh, I don't know if all of y'all met her, but she does not fuck around with that love. <laughs> and it's a. Uh, empowering and just the amount of gratitude I have for her just seeing her today and seeing y'all today no joke it's been difficult seeing y'all today because I want to run up and hug every one of you I want to tell you I'm proud of you I want to tell you I love you It's been, it's been a hard year. We may need to sing each other's songs inside of our head. <laughs> Lift each other up from a distance. I love what we have going on. I was telling Andrew on the way here, it's, uh, you know, growing up in the punk scene, we didn't have gangs, we had crews. And uh, I've been a part of a couple crews, you know, the groups of people that they love you no matter what. Maybe they should, you know, tell you to work out some things, but they'll love you whether you're wrong or right. And, uh, I moved, I moved away from my hometown. And, uh, I, yeah, I miss my friends a lot. So it's great to have a new, you know, crew. It's like Dharma gang we're starting here. I was telling somebody, I was like, I want a sangha that will help me bury the body. 
I think I think I found it. <laughs> so if you need any help, call me up. I got your back. <laughs> so this love and support we show each other. It's empowering. Let it empower you. The strength of loving kindness. As fear shows up, as hate shows up, empowered to keep going. I love you, keep going. So what we are going to address tonight may be more challenging. So don't forget that love. So I'm talking about the the wings of this practice. Some of y'all probably heard about these wings of the practice, these wings that help us soar in this practice. Uh, The two wings, wisdom and compassion, seeing clearly and responding wisely. That we want to have an evenness of the head, the heart, so we can soar. I don't know if some of y'all soared today, but it's nice when you get to that like flow state You're in the pocket, that stillness and that samadhi, that beautiful space. And we need to know how to access that and how to gain wisdom from that pocket. When we're soaring, what do we need to do? What do we need to look at? What will help us take this out into the world? And so on one end, with this wisdom, the near enemy of wisdom is ignorance. And we look at ignorance is um, the idea that some of these aspects of Dharma truths without the other wing of compassion, it's a hard pill to swallow. So we fall on this aspect of ignorance because we want to ignore it. We want to ignore the suffering in life, unsatisfactory aspects of life, the impersonal aspects of life. It's a tough pill to swallow unless you have this other end of compassion where the near enemy of compassion is pity. So we have courage with compassion. Courage, as my teacher sings songs to me in my head. The courage that I'll love you no matter what. To look at this dharma that was laid out to us 2,600 years ago. So there's a story uh, in the time of the Buddha. He had a student, and this student, I don't know what he was looking for, but he wasn't happy with the Buddha's dharma, so he, he left the, the community, left the sangha, and uh, he went around town, and he was, he was talking shit about the Buddha. You know? He went to King Pasenadi as the king of the time of the Buddha and was a support supporter of the Buddha. And he said, uh, you know, the, this guy they call the Buddha doesn't have any supernatural powers, doesn't perform miracles, he's not a god. None of his teachings come from any divine place, doesn't come from any higher being. Everything he teaches just comes directly from his own experience. And the only thing he really teaches about is suffering and the end of suffering. And so uh, 
the Buddha got word that this ex-student of his was running around town talking shit. And so when the Buddha heard, he was like, I know, I know he's trying to diss me, trying to kind of be a dick about things. But really, that's the highest praise. Uh, This Dharma is uh, something you can experience, and it leads to the liberation and end of suffering. And so we need to remember that. I know, like, y'all probably heard this before. Yeah, 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 we can do this, we can do this, I've heard that. This is a chance to directly do this. This is your opportunity, and if it hasn't happened already, it will. To see this insight practice. So we call Vipassana insight practice, where we directly experience the insights that the Buddha outlined for us. So we sit here. I tell you, watch your breath. He tells you to be kind. Why? What's the good of that? What's the good of just sitting here watching our breath and being kind? And uh, there's a famous quote. William Blake writes, To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildfire. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. To see, to see this, the world in a grain of sand, as we watch the breath with a certain attitude, we can see the truth of all existence and the arising and passing of this breath. So all truth of the nature of the whole universe can be experienced here and now. Sometimes we feel like if I need to know how the whole world works, how the whole universe works, we may need to go explore the whole universe and the whole world. I need to go travel places. I need to get to know people. I need to see this terrain and that terrain. I need to see all these different ways things work. In this context, you're not separate from all of that. You are made up of the same exact stuff the whole universe is made up of. This you abides by the same laws of the expanding and contracting of the whole universe. As we're in an expansion right now, as the planets separate, our lungs are in an expansion of an inhalation. And as an exhalation is the contracting of all experience that maybe someday we'll experience. Probably not in our lifetime. But this is idea that the universe is expanding and contracting, and so are our, our lungs expanding and contracting, and knowing that this is how all the universe works, expansion and contraction. And so this leads us to this uh, gift of this insight of impermanence. The arising and passing of the breath we can directly experience as we fully know the arising and passing of all conditions. I had a teacher, he's an intense guy, uh, he says, you're breathing in, that's birth, and breathing out, that's death. Every time you exhale, that's the end. 
and you know there may not be another inhalation, and sometime there, that will be your last breath, and there won't be an inhalation. That's pretty intense, right? I don't know. He was, he was a hardcore guy. But it's, it's nice to, to experience death in this moment, the death of that exhalation. But what comes next? Birth. And appreciating the birth and releasing the death the arising and passing of this breath. And we get to know uh, personally. And, uh, you know, I'm going to throw back to <laughs> hanging out with Panyawati today. It was so brief, too, but it was, it was so great. Uh, and I said, you know, how are you doing? She says, I'm really good. Like, kind of surprised. She's like, well, I'm really good. And then she goes, and I know that will change. So right now, it's appreciating how good it is. And it's, it's cool to have that, that truth of, like, mm-hmm. how often do we do that? When, we're, when, when things are going really well, do we fully know it's, it's going to go away? Like, right now, 10 out of 10 moment. Love seeing all y'all, especially since I haven't seen all y'all. Love, I love uh, this place. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. And eh, we're going to have to go home some point. That's still up you know, in the air, whatever day. <laughs> I'm going to leave whenever he tells me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the getting to know that this moment will be over. So don't squander this practice. Take full, uh, you know, Do it. Do this practice. Commit to this practice because you're going to get back and that world's going to be a shit show as it was before we got here. <laughs> so take advantage of this moment. Don't squander this moment. Um, you know, and then Panyawati, I don't know if I'm even allowed to talk about this, but she mentioned her retirement. And my heart broke. She says, you know, I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to leave this to all y'all. You know, she's really supportive of us teaching here. She wants us to teach her more. She said, I want to get this place set up for, for you so I can retire. And I said, oh, that's going to break my heart when you retire. <laughs> Not having her around as much. So I don't need to squander her teachings. And no... Just like all conditions, they arise and pass. And so we have this dilemma in life that as all things arise and pass, um, it's hard to find a place to land. You know, there's that, that, what is that story? I think it's Ajahn Chah, where um, they were teaching retreat and you know, talking about non-attachment, not having attachment to things, but there was, he was always holding this cup, and he loved this cup, and went around and had the same cup that he was attached to. And, uh, and one of the students asked him, he said, hey, you know, how come we can't have stuff, but you have that same cup everywhere you go? He said, well, the difference between your stuff and my cup is, this cup's already broken. So he knew that cup was already broken. So this retreat is already over. This, this life is already over. 
And we, we are in this dilemma of looking at this brief, fragile existence of life. And, uh, and we, because of the brief, uh, impermanent, fragile aspects of life that we look at impermanence, it leads us to another insight of dukkha. Dukkha, suffering. And all conditions are impermanent. So if our sense of well-being is reliant on conditions, our own sense of well-being will be impermanent. And so this word dukkha, it's a, you know, Andrew likes to say is derived from like the wheel of an ox cart. And then it's a disjointed wheel of an ox cart. So this life is kind of disjointed, if you notice. And so it's like the idea that there's a smooth ride and then there's a bump. And a smooth ride and a bump. It's like a bumpiness in our ride. Have you had a bumpy ride so far? Yeah. It was funny. I was at uh, uh, Kroger and got a, got a grocery cart. <laughs> And this, uh, I had this grocery cart, and it was just like, it had that one wheel that was, that was bumping. And, you know, uh, and I was like, oh, why do I always get the messed up grocery cart? Oh, my gosh. And then Andrew's voice came to my head. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's a bumpy ride. So I'm smooth, 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 bumpy, smooth, 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 bumpy. You know, and I, I came up with this beautiful insight around the grocery cart. I might be breaking a precept right now just to let you in. We're in an argument of whoever came up with that uh, analogy. <laughs> yeah, so life is bumpy. <laughs> and I'm glad we could laugh about it too because that's the thing. It's like, you know, it may be tough news to hear, but the when we see it, we can laugh about it. When we get the, the grocery cart that is bumpy, because I can really stress out about a, a, a bumpy grocery grocery cart. I can say, oh, why did I? I always get the fucked up grocery cart. I always go to the grocery store that sucks. I, you know, and then I blame myself. But we look at the uh, this aspect of dukkha that we start kind of with some bad news that there is um, gain and loss in life, praise and blame. Fame and shame, pleasure and pain. We have these equal parts in life. And so if our sense of well-being is only around when we're in the praise, pleasure, gain part, our, our sense of well-being is going to be up and down, up and down, up and down. So this, this is what I want you to directly experience with this breath. As you're breathing in and breathing out, and it's a calm, nice breath, and you have that sense of stillness, concentration, samadhi, loving kindness in you, and it's a smooth ride. And then the, the mind gets rowdy, and starts getting agitated, gets bored, wants to fantasize, wants to plan, wants to do this, wants to do that. Where's your sense of well-being then? 
can you still have a sense of well-being when your mind is being rowdy? And so this is the truth of, of dukkha that we look at, the truth of suffering, dissatisfaction, disjointedness. Um, that we want to know this fully so we don't get caught off guard. Because the true cause of suffering is when we're caught off guard, that life isn't supposed to be this way. And it actually is. It doesn't mean it's not heartbreaking. When I say, like, so much of my recent um, difficulties was this loss around friendship. And to have a certain sense of grief, I feel like, is suitable. This inevitable grief, because humans need to bond with each other. They need to connect. We need to have a certain amount of attachments to be okay. But it's when they go away and we feel a sense of grief, because grief is just a process of love. Grief is a love and loss. But when we don't open up to that heartbreak of loss uh, and we start guarding our hearts, that leads us to suffering. So we are given this lesson to embrace dukkha, embrace life directly with all of its loss and all of its gain and all of its pleasure and all of its pain. Embrace this and fully know this. So know the pain directly so you don't have to suffer over it. And this is a very simple lesson in my own meditation practice. Probably one of the first insights I ever uh, received was my itch. I talk about this itch all the time. I started in a Zen practice in a very small community with very strict monks and nuns. And they were all much older than me. I was in my mid-twenties. I was a mess. I was smelly. (laughs) I was, you know... That was a lot of things. And uh, I, I was sitting and, you know, in the zendo, and they had very you know, upright posture and very ritualistic. And, and uh, I had an itch on my nose, but I didn't want to scratch this itch. I didn't want to go like this because I didn't want to disrupt anybody in there. So as I had this itch on my nose, I, I uh, was like, okay. They say turn towards it. Turn towards the pain. Okay. I turned towards the pain. I became curious with the pain. And this pain was at the tip of my nose. And, I, and everything in me just wanted to do this, but I was like, okay, let's, let's just see what happens. Developed a sense of curiosity with this itch. And as I turned towards the itch, a certain amount of numbness started coming around the side of my nose. And then I started to notice where the itch wasn't. That, okay, it kind of started right here and there's numbness and then there's a point there. And then a certain amount of tolerance towards the pain happened that, okay, you can be here too. That's fine. You can be here. And then the next insight of uh, impermanence arose. It just went away all on its own. So this is the direct experience of the arising and passing, the direct experience of knowing dukkha directly with tolerance rather than reactivity. Because that's what they say, the true cause of suffering isn't the pain, it's the reactivity towards the pain. It's the craving for the pain to be away. It's the hatred of the pain. It's the clinging to pleasure to avoid pain is the true cause of suffering. 
And so that one insight really changed my life. Like shortly after that, like I quit drinking, I quit taking drugs, I quit, quit punching people because I developed this tolerance and acceptance that, oh, pain is natural in life. I wasn't surprised when I felt pain. I go, okay, yeah, that's pain. There it is, tolerance towards pain. Changes everything. And so we want to fully know pain and dukkha as it arises. What's the true cause of suffering? And it's, it's like Andrew said, there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering, and suffering that leads to more suffering. So we want to know when we get to that point with something and know, like, did that, did that just end suffering or was that more suffering? You know, so it's okay to suffer. Please suffer. Suffer well and know when you're suffering because this is a guess and check game. Like, you, you can't just, you know, okay, that's how you do it. Done. I'm done suffering. This is something you put into practice. And this is the lesson in the uh, suttas, what the Buddha said about this is dukkha. And uh, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Um, Being separated from those who are dear is dukkha. Being in company of those who are not dear is dukkha. And, And so all of these things, let's say, connected to the impermanence of of life. That we all experience birth, birth, aging, sickness, and death. We have loved ones, and we're going to miss them when they're gone. And we have people we don't like all that much, and we're going to be in company with them sometimes. This is the inevitableness of life. So next time you're around somebody that annoys you, oh yeah, that's what the Buddha said. Yep. Use that as an insight. Next time you're in company of an unpleasant memory. Oh, yeah, I was promised this. You're in company of something that doesn't feel that dear to you. Okay, yeah. This was promised to me. So use your pain to fuel the insight that will lead you to a higher happiness. And so as the Buddha said all these things, that birth, aging, sickness, death, and uh, being in company of people you don't like and being separated from people you like. This message at the end, he said, in short, clinging to the five aggregates of self is dukkha. In short, in short, you know? So it's like kind of like wrapping all this up. Um, and I'm not going to go into the five aggregates, but I'm going to go into this third aspect of a mark of existence that a clinging to a permanent self is the cause of suffering. And so that's where it gets us here in this aspect of when an itch arises in my nose, if I observe that itch and not take it as self, not take it as my itch, not taking on the responsibilities of that itch, now I can observe it and watch it arise and pass all on its own. And so this aspect of not self, anatta, it, it, sometimes it, it's uh, taken into a real philosophical aspect, and then we get all confused in our heads, and then it gets in the way of actually experiencing what this insight is. I don't know if really what the Buddha taught was meant to be so much a, a philosophy about whether this, uh, there's a soul or 
uh, whether there is a true self or a genuine self, but really that this is something you can experience, that there is a lack of permanent self going on in your experience. And I'll just take this from the macro to the micro. So in my life, you know, identity has been something that has been helpful. And it's also been difficult, too. So in my life, I, I constructed that we see these identities are something that has been constructed in the mind. Um, you know, like middle school or so, I, uh, I played sports, <laughs> particularly soccer. So it was like a cool sport, at least, you know, I think it is. Nashville's got a major league soccer team now. I don't know. So I still kind of like it, but there's a little woundedness around that. So I started playing sports in middle school, and then um, I had this coach that was just really awful to me and, and really mean to me. And, uh, and the kids on my team were really mean to me as well. I don't know, it was weird or didn't get along, something. And so I just felt like an outcast. And so what I did was I went to the outcasts. I found identity with, with the punk rockers, you know? And uh, that shit saved my life. Being part of a community and a culture of like-minded people. The shit that I think punk rock brought me here, you know? And so that is great that I have this identity as a punk rocker that I know, like, if somebody's into the Ramones, there's something jumps up in me and gets excited, and it's automatically we have something in common. We're probably from the same circles. We probably know some of the same people in the punk scene, um, and we have something to talk about and connect with. And then there's another side of that coin, too, though, that I don't feel safe generally with people I project as normies, you know? You don't know what it's like. <laughs> I've seen some shit, you know? Um, which is terrible. So I construct this identity, and it's good to construct identity and no identity, but I need to know that this comes from a wounded place. I like the book Catcher in the Rye. I don't know if you've read that, but, you know, an old school book, some places in it are problematic, but... There's this, this idea that Holden Caulfield was this young kid, and he, he was saying the, the adult world are phonies. And I was like, well, I remember reading that in high school, and I was like, that, this guy gets me. Like, the adult world is phonies, and he's never going to grow up because all the phonies in the adult world. And that's where the catcher in the rye came from, you know, that the, there was a field of rye. And, and at the end of this field of rye, there was a drop-off. And the kids that were playing in the rye couldn't see the drop-off because the, the rye was too high. So the kids were running through the rye and falling into this, this rye, or the drop-off. And uh, this was a, his analogy to the adult world. They, didn't, they don't see it coming. So I'm going to catch them as they fall. Mm-hmm. So he's like protecting them from the phony world.
And this identity is protecting me from the so-called phony world. But it's great to go into that so-called phony world and realize they're just human as well. Yeah, I worked at a restaurant for years and um, I projected a lot on business people that looked like they were doing better than me. And uh, there was this one guy, he uh, he's dressed really nice, worked at some business, I go to take his money and uh, he pulls out his wallet and it says, you know, like from Pulp Fiction, badass motherfucker on the wallet. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. Yeah, so sometimes I forget that, you know, just because you wear your suit doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> and so I need to learn when to let go of that identity and realize that people in suits sometimes are badass motherfuckers. Um, so how do we construct this self? We need to see that. So from the macro to the micro, like what can you experience on how you created this self? And I'm not saying identity is bad. We need to have identity. We need to celebrate diversity. We need to know uh, identities and what identities are with us. And at the same time, like I said, we need to see what this self, this construct of self is. And so as we sit, how many stories has your mind told you about yourself? I am this way. I am that way. I need to do this when I get home. I should have done that. And we, we practice this lesson of knowing a thought as a thought. You need to go home and do this. Well, who, who's you? Oh, it's just a thought in the mind. You know, I hate it when you do this. Who's you? Oh, that's a thought. So just knowing a thought as a thought, we start to realize well, these memories, these plans, these uh, preferences, these ideas and identities are just a making of the mind. And I don't know if that's that clear to you. I don't know if it's that clear to me. But when uh, I'm lost in a story about myself or somebody else, and I create this self and other, where I am just protecting myself from past wounds, from the self and other, and then as soon as I say, you know, who's this self and who's this other? Oh, it's a making of my mind, and I can let it down and actually be in company of people that I may have some sort of bigotry against. So it's like the undefending of the heart that this mind, you know, defends the heart by creating egos, identities, and stories. Just know a thought as a thought. And maybe some of these things that sound a little esoteric won't be. You'll see, who, who's this I? Who's I? That mind you made up all the stories about. It's just a construct. It's just a thought. So as we bring this forward in these three marks of existence that may be uh, you know, difficult to look at, we look at the impermanent, imperfect, impersonal nature of life. 
and impermanent, the arising and passing as you're sitting here in the, the, with the breath, the arising and passing of the sound, just like the rising and passing of all things, the rising and passing of friendships, of jobs, of family, of friends, of situations, this breath, same thing, arises and passes. The unsatisfactory nature of life, that it's tough. We don't really have any ground to fall on because of this truth of impermanence and the impersonal nature. That this identity is just a construct of the mind. Just watch the thoughts, know the thoughts as the thoughts. So there, this isn't just bad news. There is a way out. When I say if your sense of well-being is reliant on conditions, your sense of well-being will be impermanent because all conditions are impermanent. And this leads us to, you know, what, um, what we know as the unconditional. Now, the Buddha taught about the unconditioned and the deathless. And what, how can, we can directly practice this. This is not an elaborate idea about awakening somewhere far off. This is right now that we find an unconditional sense of well-being that isn't reliant on the conditions we're in. So when your mind is acting rowdy, that's where the rubber hits the road. When it gets messy and you're suffering, where, where can you train to find a sense of well-being that isn't reliant on the mind being rowdy or not being rowdy. When you're in pain, when your body is tired from sitting here, can you find a sense of well-being that isn't reliant on the body being any which way? This is where we stretch our practice out. And this is the training. And like I said, sitting with these difficulties, we're going to be able to get to the unconditional sense of well-being by unconditioning some of our conditioned responses. The unconditioning of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this gives us to the other wing, the, the responding wisely, the compassion side. It's going to be a lot easier to find a sense of well-being in any condition when your, your mind is inclined towards loving kindness. You know, like Andrew was talking about what door you walk through to get into the Dharma. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Mine was like gloom and doom. I think that's where I walked in. When I heard the Buddha say, you know, like death is inevitable and, you know, like everything you own will go away and rot and die. And I'm like, sweet, this guy is telling me everything I want to hear. Verified right there that I'm not different or strange, just really validating my experience. But the only thing we own in this life, you know, is karma. We'll be separated from all things. I'm of the nature to grow old, I'm of the nature to get sick, I'm of the nature to die, I'll be separated from everything and everyone I love. Some reason that did it for me. 
But it was like, yeah, that seems to be true in my experience. Thanks for validating me. And then there's an upside of this message. The only thing you own in this world is karma. All of that stuff's going to happen, but the only thing you really own is your relationship to that, and that's the momentum you're going to pass forward. And so this is our response. So when you sit there, you say loving-kindness phrases, this is karma. This is the inclination of the mind that Andrew was talking about. That inclination is the momentum of loving-kindness. And this is what we own in this world. And so while I had a bleak outlook when I started this practice, um, you know, I think it was like Dave Smith was probably the first teacher I ever practiced loving kindness meditation with. And I just thought it was like the most like hateful practice where he's like, you know, say these phrases, may you be filled with loving kindness. I'm like, what, my mind isn't good enough as it is? Like, like my mind's agitated, that's fine. Like, why do I not want to have an agitated mind? <laughs> Y'all didn't ask that question when you started doing loving kindness? <laughs> I'm sorry, there's a couple of you there. Why do I want my mind to be full of ease? Like, <laughs> I, I think that's an okay question. Like, <laughs> so it's like, what lens are you looking through? That's kind of what it is. Y'all have that person in your life you just can't stand? Like, everything about them drives you nuts. Like, the way they talk is annoying. Like, what they do for a living is annoying. Their politics are terrible. They look silly and they dress funny and just everything about them is annoying. And, like, even their friends are awful just because they're guilty by association. Everything is bad about this person. Well, that's because you got hater lenses on. Like, obviously, that's not the truth. <laughs> obviously, this person can't be bad in every single way. And then we got the other end. You get a crush on somebody, and they're like, oh, my gosh, they're so beautiful. And everything about them is just amazing, the way they dress, so sexy. <laughs> the way they cut their hair, the way they, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old married dude. I don't know. What is this? Wait, the way their beard is so hot. And the, the rocking the camo with the tie-dye together. It's so edgy. <laughs> Just everything. Just sexy over there. <laughs> And unfortunately for his, uh, you know, sake, not necessarily true. Maybe. But that's another thing. We just don't want to look at the world through, you know, lusty lenses either. It's like, obviously, <laughs> there's probably some faults in there. Maybe I'll see them someday. So that's where it's like, where, why do we want to see the world through kind eyes? Oh, because we see the truth. It's much easier to see the truth when we have kind eyes rather than hate or lusty. When we see the world with kind eyes, we can actually approach these difficulties. Oh, yeah, this, this world is full of 
impermanent and personal and unsatisfactory qualities. And at the other end, yeah, there's some awesome things in life. And so this is what brings us to these Brahma Viharas that Andrew is talking about, this uh, God's home or something like that. You know, the place, uh, this dwelling. I like that dwelling aspect, finding home. You know, so much of my life is like trying to find a home. And then when the Buddha says, oh, it's right there in your heart. Oh, yeah, it's been there all along. So we have these chambers of the heart, they call them. These, these four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. And so we expand this heart of loving kindness to include aspects that are difficult with compassion and parts that are beautiful with non-attached appreciation. And then when we learn this, we have a balanced heart with equanimity. We know how to meet the pleasure and pain with this sense of compassion and appreciation. So I'll talk about compassion. We'll practice some compassion tomorrow. But um, but learning this appreciation too, this, this gift of impermanence, that teaches us some valuable, valuable appreciation. And my, my heart leapt up at Panyawadi mentioning, you know, retiring um, and really appreciating this moment together of how, how much um, beauty and comfort I received from all y'all. And there was a teacher, I can't remember who said it, and he said, uh, I think sometimes God gets pissed off at me whenever I don't stop and check out the the purple flowers that he put there on my way to work. Mm. So it's it's okay to appreciate the goodness in life, definitely. I'm not saying all this because it's bad news. It's just good information to have. When these difficult qualities arise, we're not surprised by them. But don't get in some gloom and doom either. It arises and passes, so appreciate it while it's here. Appreciate the flowers. Appreciate the friendships. Appreciate all of it. Because it will go away. Andrew is talking to me about, I like. He's doing this practice. I like. Or uh, they did a walking meditation at one of his trainings. I like how I'm telling his story, just like the, the shopping cart. So I was at this training. <laughs> Let me see if I can say this. Right. I was at this training at, at Spirit Rock. I've never been to Spirit Rock, but for some reason I was at this training there. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, they were going around the the campus and... Their training was to go, I like, I like, I like. Just because we got to work against some of this negativity bias that we have that are, we're set up for survival, not happiness. So go find things you like. I like, I like, I like. With the true knowledge of knowing that it arises and passes. Brings in another sense of appreciation, really. 
So we change our relationship to all these things and will we'll lead to the highest happiness available, and that's peace. So in any moment you find peace, know it, because that's the highest happiness available. And over time, when we reach this place of peace, it'll be more and more available to us.